In my experience, conversations are best had with a glass of whiskey. Join me, Alan Kogan, as I engage in meaningful discussions while enjoying a glass of my favorite spirit. Welcome to the Kogan Conversation. So a while ago, I actually went to George Washington's uh, distillery and grist mill, which is right next to uh, his mansion, Mount Vernon, here in Virginia. A really awesome place if you ever get the chance to go. Uh, I think it's $10 for a tour, and they show you the gr- the original grist mill that he uh, used and bought, you know, the big stones that grind the grains together from France, and they are still using those today. Um, and the original distillery, they had to rebuild after exhuming the, the, the grounds and finding the original footprint. Um, but they rebuilt it to the exact specifications that were originally there, um, along with the slave quarters that were uh, in the distillery for the slaves that were operating the distillery. I believe they lived upstairs, uh, which is now just a, I think it's just an office or storage for just the fact that it's there. But regardless, it's, a, it's an operating distillery. Uh, it was around for about two years prior to uh, President Washington passing away. Um, obviously, it, it wasn't his main venture. His main venture was being president. But after he retired, he went uh, home to Mount Vernon and decided to uh, start making whiskey as another business venture to make some money and just make use of his land and his uh, his crops. So I was there. Uh, we have talked about this before. Uh, George Washington made primarily rye and also brandy, but rye back then and any kind of whiskey was not aged. It was simply just sold as clear alcohol. And what that is lacking then is the mellowness and the, the sweetness of the barrel, uh, which we now demand in the market of whiskey today. But back then it was just unaged. It looked like moonshine, although it was still watered down about 40, 40%, 45% alcohol, so it wasn't too harsh. And it didn't have as much flavor or sweetness. Um, it was just straight rye notes. It was very spicy. It's pretty good, though. Um, when I was there, I bought the uh, the recreation with the original recipe of, of the rye that uh, Washington would have been selling and drinking uh, out of Mount Vernon and, and the area. It was once the largest distillery in the United States. I think it sold up upwards of 10,000 or 11,000 gallons of whiskey in its short uh, two-and-a-half-year span. But after he died, of course, the distillery went under, and that was that. Um, But I wanted to drink this whiskey while having this episode recorded because I think it's, it's like drinking history. It's drinking something that actually would have been sold back in Washington today that uh, flooded the market and made whiskey one of America's most treasured spirits because the father of our country distilled it and enjoyed it. Um, but I just think it's, it's a cool it's a cool little aspect. I'm drinking history. And I'm actually going to read the back of the bottle for you before I move on to what I actually want to read. Uh, but in, 19, in, se- 19, in 1797, upon the suggestion of his Scottish farm manager, George Washington expanded his commercial enterprises at Mount Vernon to include whiskey distilling. Trials were so successful, he built a large two-story structure fitted with five stills, producing nearly 11,000 gallons of rye whiskey in 1799. It was likely the largest distillery in 18th century America. So, 
the one that I'm drinking right now, which is it's a little more palatable than the original, is the uh, premium rye, which is aged for four years. It's aged in char American oak barrels. So this small batch of whiskey was handcrafted in Washington's reconstructed distillery using 18th century methods and Washington's mash bill of 60% rye, 35% corn, and 5% malted barley. After locally sourced grains were ground in our water-powered grist mill, Mount Vernon distillers fermented mash in wooden tubs and used copper pot stills heated by wood fires to produce this rare spirit. So that's kind of what the, the cool thing about this, too, is they actually use the original process that they would have used in the 1700s. Um, obviously, nowadays, we have we have a lot of technology and things to make temperature correct and, and all that good stuff and you know, mass-produce larger quantities of, of the spirit, but... Uh, in Washington's day, they didn't have that. So it was all wood-fired, um, very laborious-type uh, distilling, and I, I appreciate that. And I think that handmade flavor and historical value makes us better. I was once asked, does the history, the, excuse me, does the history of the whiskey make me biased towards the flavor? Um, I think it makes me biased towards the enjoyment of it. I, I, you know, I could put this next to a, a rye, a uh, modern rye or a rye from a larger distillery um, that has been around for a lot longer. Um, and probably, you know, as far as quality goes and sweetness goes and, and the rye spice, I'd probably pick something else. But this is more enjoyable. This is a fun party trick to pull out to, to someone and, and, and show them the history of George Washington's uh, whiskey making that is usually not that well known. And, uh, yeah, I think it makes it taste better. I, I mean, I think that's that's not a bad thing. Most whiskeys that I have on the shelf here have a story, and I love that aspect. I love learning about the distilleries and the people who are making the whiskey and the, and the purpose behind it. You know, I, that's one of the reasons why I'm not a big fan of how mass-produced Jim Beam and Jack Daniels have become, because Jim Beam and Jack Daniels alone, their stories and their small distilleries and how they started and, and the original recipe that still carries on today is a wonderful story. But now, you know, you have Beam Suntry owning almost everything in the whiskey market, and it's all commercialized. And it's it's almost unfortunate that these stories sometimes get lost just because of mass production. Um, so, you know, that being said, these these nostalgic uh, pieces of novelty and, and, and George Washington's history, uh, they're for sale at Mount Vernon and at the distillery, which is just down the road, but that's it. You can't get these anywhere else, and they're expensive. They're too expensive. I think this a four-year-old rye that they call the premium rye, which is, and it's only in a, a 350. Yeah, it's a 350. I'm sorry, 375 milliliter, milliliter bottle, which is small, going for uh, almost two hundred dollars, and you're paying for really the face on the bottle and the name of the bottle, and that's about it. But also the process and the story and the enjoyment of of the whiskey. So I. I pour small pours for friends and and and, uh, and even myself because I want it to last. I don't want to have to go back and buy it because I like having it on my shelf. Mm. But I think that being said, it's a it's a very very sweet. It's a, on the nose is almost like a star fruit, but uh, on the and obviously the rice spice is there too, and some wood tannins, a little bit of vanilla, um, but a lot of like star fruit. I get a, I get a very very distinct nose. The nose on this is quite impressive. Um, unfortunately, the taste isn't as impressive as the nose. The taste has a, a little bit of a toffee, some maybe some hints of butterscotch, 
obviously rice spice, um, maybe some caramel. Other than that, it's a pretty basic rye. It's nothing nothing too out there as far as ryes go. It's not aged in anything specific. It doesn't have any specific, you know, specialty about it. Um, but it's pretty smooth. It, it's uh, it's forty three percent, but it's not it's not offensive. It's a very very mild uh, rye spice with not too much burn on the back end. Um, I could enjoy this all night. This is a very very good sipping whiskey. Um, it's just a very expensive sipping whiskey, but it's fun to share the history of, of our first president and his endeavors outside of the presidency. That being said, though, uh, this podcast is just me. I don't have a guest on, and uh, I just wanted to sit down and I wanted to read uh, our first president, George Washington's uh, farewell address that he gave uh, on his exit after serving two terms, setting a precedent for uh, future presidents and their farewell addresses, and making it clear that we we have to, we have to not be what we broke away from, what he fought with the Revolutionary War against, in uh, in, in you know against Britain, against tyranny, against the monarchy, and making sure that we are not becoming kings or or deities ourselves, and uh, making sure that we are bearing true faith to. What is the United States of America? Each sovereign state, each each sovereign colony, colony at the time, becoming uh, one country uh, with a president that is duly elected by the people of the country, not uh, taking power as as George Washington sure could have. He could have served as long as he wanted to. He was that beloved. Um, he was that successful of a general, but uh, he knew that would be detrimental for what we were doing, and it wasn't until after FDR that the Congress passed an amendment requiring there only be two terms for a president, but every president prior to FDR followed suit um, with Washington setting the precedent of two four-year terms and exiting with a peaceful transition of power. And even in 1800, we have the first peaceful transition of power of uh, different parties, so one party ideology to the next um, with no issue, because it was a uh, it was based on a democratic election, and that's such a beautiful moment to think about that you know how far we've come, and given all the roller coasters of this past year, this past election, and what's going on right now, um, you know I think it's very important for us to reflect on history, and I think I'm going to let the man talk himself and read you his words from his farewell address. <clears throat> so, uh, President Washington's farewell address was first printed in the Philadelphia newspaper, American Daily Advertiser, on September 19, 1796. James Madison wrote parts of the introduction a few years earlier in 1792. And James Madison, if you don't know, was the father of the Constitution. He, he wrote most of the Constitution, the wording around it. And Alexander Hamilton helped edit Washington's draft for the 1796 address. Washington's address set the tone for all future presidential farewell addresses. Friends and citizens, the period for a new election of a citizen to administer the executive government of the United States being not far distant, and the time actually arrived when your thoughts must be employed in designating the person who is to be clothed with that important trust. It appears to me proper, especially as it may conduce a more distinct expression of the public voice. 
that I should now appraise you of the resolution I have formed to decline being considered among the number of those out of whom a choice is to be made. I beg you, at the same time, to do me the justice to be assured that this resolution has not been taken without a strict regard to all the considerations appertaining to the relation which binds a dutiful citizen to his country, and that in which drawing the tender of service with silence in my situation might imply. I am influenced by no diminution of zeal for your future interests, nor deficiency of grateful respect for your past kindness. But I am supported by a full conviction that step is compatible by both. The acceptance of and continuance hitherto in the office to which your suffrages have twice called me have been a uniform sacrifice of inclination to the opinion of duty and to, and to a deference for what appeared to be your desire. I constantly hoped that it would, be, it would have been much earlier in my power, consistently with motives which I was not at liberty to disregard, to return to that retirement from which I had been reluctantly drawn. The strength of my inclination to do this, previous to the last election, had even led to the preparation of an address to declare it to you. But mature reflection on the, on, the, on the then perplexed and critical posture of our affairs with foreign nations and the unanimous advice of persons entitled to my confidence impelled me to abandon the idea. I rejoice that the state of your concerns, external as well as internal, no longer renders the pursuit of inclination incompatible with the sentiment of duty or pro- propriety, and am persuaded whatever partial, partiality may be retained for my services that in the present circumstances of our country, you will not disapprove my determination to retire. The impressions with which I first undertook the arduous trust were explained on the proper occasion. In the discharge of this trust, I will only only say that I have, with good intentions, contributed towards the organization and administration of the government, the best exertions of which a very fallible judgment was capable. Not unconscious to the outset of the inferiority of my qualifications, experience in my own eyes, perhaps still more in the eyes of others, has strengthened the motives to diffidence of myself. And every day the increasing weight of years admonishes me more and more that the shade of retirement is as necessary to me as it will be welcome. Satisfied that if any circumstances have given peculiar value to my services, they were temporary. I have a consolation Excuse me. I have the consolation to believe that while choice and prudence invite me to quit the political scene, patriotism does not forbid it. In looking forward to the moment in which is it intended to terminate my career of my public life, my feelings do not permit me to suspend the deep acknowledgement of that debt of gratitude of which I owe my beloved country for the many honors it has conferred upon me. Still, more for the steadfast confidence with which it has supported me, and for the opportunities I have thence enjoyed of manifesting my inviolable attachment. My services faithful and preserving through in usefulness unequal to my zeal. If benefits have resulted to our country from these services, let it always be remembered to your praise and as an instructive example in our annuals. That under circumstances in which the passions agitated in every direction, 
were liable to mislead amidst appearances sometimes dubious, vicissitudes of, of fortune often discouraging in situations in which un, not, frequent, not unfrequently want of success has... Excuse me. Want of success has countenanced the spirit of cri- criticism. The, cons- the constancy... See, this is very difficult to read Old English. The constancy of your support was the essential prop of the efforts and a guarantee of the plans by which they were effected. Profoundly penetrated with this idea, I shall carry it with me to my grave as a strong incitement to unceasing vows that heaven may continue to to you the choicest tokens of its beneficence, that your union and brotherly affection may be perpetual, that the free constitution which is the work of your hands may be sacredly maintained, that its administration in every department may be stamped with wisdom and virtue, that in fine the happiness of the people of these states under the auspices of liberty may be made complete by so careful a preservation and so prudent to these, to a use, excuse me, a preservation and so prudent a use of of this blessing as will require them to the glory of of recommending it to the applause, the affection, and the adoption of every nation which is yet a, stra- a stranger to it. Here, perhaps I ought to stop. But a solitude of your, for your welfare, which cannot end without, with, which cannot end but with my life, and the apprehension of danger natural to that solitude, urge me, on an occasion like the present, to offer to your solemn contemplation, and to recommend to your frequent review, some sentiments which, which are the result of much reflection, of, of no inconsiderable observation, and which appear to me all important to the per- permanency of your felicity as, as a people. These will be offered to you with the more freedom, as you can only see in them the disinterested warnings of a parting friend, who can possibly me possibly have no personal motive to bias his counsel. Nor can I forget, as encouragement to it, your indulgent recaption of my sentiments on a former and not dissimilar occasion. Interwoven as it as is the love of liberty with every ligament of your hearts, no recommendation of mine is necessary to fortify or confirm the attachment. The unity of government, which constitutes you one people, is also now dear to you. It is justly so for it is main pillar and the defi- and the edifice of your real independence, the support of your tranquility at home, your peace abroad, of your safety, of your prosperity, of that very liberty of which you so highly prize. But it is as it is easy to see to foresee that from different causes and from different quarters, much pains will be taken. Many artifices employed to weaken your minds with the conviction of this truth. And this is the point of in your political fortress against which the batteries of internal and external enemies will be most constantly and actively, though often covertly and insidiously, directed. It is an infinite moment that you should properly estimate the immense value of your national union to your collective and individual happiness. 
that you should cherish a cordial, habitual, and immovable attachment to it, accustoming yourself to think and speak of it as a palladium of your pol political safety and prosperity, watching for its preservation with jealous anxiety, discountenancing whenever may suggest even a suspicion that it can in any event be broadened, and indignantly frowning upon the most the first dawning of any attempt to alienate any portion of our country from the rest, or to enfeeble the sacred ties which now link together the various parts. For this you have every inducement of sympathy and interest. Citizens, by birth or choice of a common country, that country has a site to concentrate your affections. The name of American, which belongs to you in your national capacity, must always exalt the just pride of patriotism more than any appellation derived from local discriminations. With slight shades of difference, you have the same religion, manners, habits, and political principles. You have in a common cause fought and triumphed together the independence of liberty, independence and liberty. You possess our work of joint councils and joint efforts of common dangers, sufferings, and successes. But these considerations, however, powerfully they address themselves to your sensibility, are greatly outweighed by those which apply more immediately to your interest. Here, every portion of our country finds the most commanding motives for carefully guarding and preserving, preserving the Union as a whole. The North, in an unrestrained intercourse with the South, protected by the equal laws of the common government, finds in the, induction, in the productions of the latter great additional resources of maritime and commercial enterprise and, the, and precious materials of manufacturing and, and, and industry. The South, in the, in the same intercourse, benefiting from the agency of the North, sees agriculture grow and its commerce expand. Turning partly into its own channels, the the seamen of the North, it finds its particular navigation invigorated, and while it contributes in different ways to nourish and increase the general mass of national navigation, it, it looks forward to the protection of a maritime strength to which itself unequally adapted. The East is like intercourse in a like intercourse with the West, already finds in the progressive improvement of interior communications by land and water will more and more find a valuable vent for those commodities which it brings from abroad or manufactures at home. The West, derives from the East, supplies requisite to its growth and comfort, and what is perhaps of still greater consequence, it must of, it must of necessary, nece, excuse me, it must of necessity owe the, the, the secure enjoyment of indispensable outlets for its own productions to the weight influence, and the future maritime strength of the Atlantic side of the Union, directed by an indissoluble community of interests as one nation. Any other tenure by which the West can hold this essential advantage, whether derived from its own separate strength or from an apostate and unnatural connection with any foreign power, must be intrinsically precarious. Well then, every part of our country thus feels an immediate and particular interest in union. All the parts combined cannot fail fi to find in the united mass of means and efforts greater strength, greater resources, 
proportionably greater security from external danger, a less frequent interruption of their peace by foreign nations, and what is inestimable, inestimable value they must derive from union and exemption from those broils and wars themselves, which so frequently afflict neighboring countries not tied together by the same governments, which their own rival ships alone would be sufficient to produce, but which opposite foreign alliances, attachments, and intrigues would stimulate and embitter. Hence, likewise, they will avoid the necessity of those overgrown military establishments, which, under any form of government, are inauspicious to liberty, and which are to be regarded as particularly hostile to republican liberty. In this sense, it is that your union ought to be considered as a main prop of your liberty, and that the love of the one ought to endear to you the preservation of the other. These considerations speak a persuasive language to every reflecting and virtuous mind, and exhibit the continuance of the union as a primary object of patriotic desire. Is there a doubt whether a common government can embrace so large a sphere? Let experience solve it. To listen to mere speculation with such a case were criminal. We are authorized to hope that a proper organization of the whole with auxiliary agency of governments for the respective subdivisions will afford a happy issue to the experiment. It is well worth and fair and full experiment. With such powerful and obvious motives to union, affecting all parts of our country, while experience shall not have demonstrated in its practicability, there will always be reason to distrust the patriotism of those who in any quarter may endeavor to weaken its bands. In contemplating the cases which may disturb our union, it occurs a matter of serious concern that any ground of any ground should have been furnished for characterizing parties by geographical discriminations, northern and southern, Atlantic and western, whence designing men may endeavor to excite a belief that there is a real difference of local interests and views. One of the expedients of party to acquire influence within particular districts is to misinterpret the opinions and aims of other districts. You cannot shield yourselves too much against the jealousies and heartburnings which spring from these misrepresentations. They tend to render, an a render alien to each other those who ought to be bound by fraternal affection. The inhabitants of our western country have lately had useful lesson by this head. They have seen in the negotiation by the executive and the unanimous ratification by the Senate of the treaty with Spain, and in the universal satisfaction at that event throughout the United States, a decisive proof of how unfounded were the suspicions propagated among them a policy of general in the general government and in the Atlantic states unfriendly to their interests in regard to the Mississippi. They have been witnesses to the formation of two treaties, that with Great Britain and that with Spain which secure them everything they could desire in respect to our foreign excuse me in respect to our foreign relations towards conforming their prosperity will it not be their wisdom to rely for the preservation of these advantages of on the union by which they were procured will they not henceforth be deaf to those advisers if such there are who would 
sever them from their brethren and connect them with aliens. To the efficacy and permanency of, the, of your union, a government for the whole is in, indispensable. No alliance, however strict, between the parts can be adequate can be an adequate substitute. They must inevitably experience the infractions and interruptions with which what all alliances in all times have experienced. Sensible of this momentous truth, you have improved upon your first essay by the adoption of a constitution of government better calculated than your former for an intimate union. And for the efficacious, and for the efficacious management of your common concerns, this government, the offspring of your own choice, uninfluenced and unawed, adapted upon full investigation and mature deliberation, completely free in its principles, in the distribution of its powers, uniting in security with energy and containing within it a self, its and containing within itself a preservation for its own amendment and a just claim to your confidence and your support. Respect for its authority, compliance with its laws, acquiescence in its measures are duties enjoined by the fundamental maxims of true liberty. The basis of our political systems is the right of the people to make and alter their constitution's government. But the constitution, which at time exists, at any time exists, Till, un, till changed by explicit and authentic act by the whole people is sacredly oblige, obligatory upon all. The very idea of the power and the right of the people to establish government presupposes the duty of every individual to obey the established government. All obstructions to the execution of the laws, all combinations and associations under whatever plausible character, with the real design to direct, control, counteract, or awe the regular deliberation and action of the constitution authorities are destru destructive of this fundamental principle and of fatal tendency. They serve to organize faction, to give it artificial and extraordinary force, to put it in the place of the delegated will of the nation, the will of the party, often a small but artful and enterprising minority of the community. And, according to the alternate triumphs of different parties to make the public administration the mirror of the ill-conceited and incongruous, incongruous pro projects of faction, rather than the organ of consist consistent and wholesome plans digested by common councils and modified by mutual interests. However, combinations or associations of the above description may now and then answer popular ends. They are likely, in the course of time and things, to, to become potent engines by which cunning, ambitious, and unprincipled men will be enabled to subvert the power of the people and to usurp for themselves the reins of government, destroying afterwards the very engines which have lifted them to unjust dominion. Towards the preservation of your government and the permanency of your present happy state, it is requisite, not only that you steadily discontinuance irregular oppositions to its acknowledged authority, but also that you resist with care the spirit of innovation upon its principles. However specious in the pretexts, one, 
one method of assault may be to, to effect. In the forms of the Constitution, alterations which will impair the energy of the system and thus undermine what cannot be directly overthrown. In all, the changes to which you may be invited, remember that the time and the habit are at least as necessary to fix true character of governments as of other human institutions. That experience is the surest standard by which to test the real tendency of the existing constitution of a country that, that facility and changes upon the credit of mere hypothesis and opinion, exposes to perpetual change from the endless variety of hypothesis and opinion. And remember, I swear to God, Old English is going to kill me. I'm going to take a whiskey break. You know, it's very difficult trying to uh, assume where certain inflections on certain words go. And you clip along for about a paragraph and all of a sudden they throw a word like incongruous at you. And, you know, Washington is a very well-written and well-read um, person. So I'm trying to do him justice by reading this, reading this in the most um, off <laughs> off the cuff and eloquent and enunciated way. So please bear with me. Uh, I'm almost done. I'm going to back up here just a little bit. One method of assault may be to affect in the forms of the Constitution alterations which will impair the energy of the system and thus to undermine what cannot be directly overthrown. In all the changes to which you may be invited, remember that the time and habit are at least as necessary to fix the true character of governments as of other human institutions. That experience is the surest standard by which the test, which tests the real tendency of the existing constitution of a country. That facility and changes upon the credit of mere hypothesis and opinion exposes to perpetual change from the endless variety of hypothesis, hypotheses and opinion. And remember especially that for the efficient man management of our common interests in country so extensive as ours, a government of which <clears throat> as much vigor as is consistent with the perfect security of liberty, it is indispensable. Liberty itself will find such a government with powers properly distributed and adjusted. Its surest guardian. It is indeed little else than a name, where the government is too feeble to withstand the enterprises of faction, to confine each member of a society within the limits prescribed by laws, and to maintain all in the, all in the secure and tranquil enjoyment of the rights of person and property. I have already intimated, I'm guessing that's how you pronounce that, I have already intimated, in, intimated, to you the danger of the of parties in the state with particular reference to the founding of them on geographical discriminations. Let me now take a more comprehensive view and warn you in the most solemn manner against the baneful effects of the spirit of party generally. This spirit, unfortunately, is inseparable from our nature, having its root in the strongest passions of the human mind. It exists under different shapes in all governments, more or less stifled, controlled, or, or repressed, but in those of popular form it is seen in its gen greatest rank rankness, 
and is truly their worst enemy. The alternate domination of one faction over another, sharpened by the spirit of revenge, natural to party dissension, which is different, which in different ages and countries has perpetuated, has excuse me, has perpetrated to most horrid enormities, is itself a frightful despotism. Despotism. <laughs> but this leads at, at length to a more formal and permanent despotism. The disorders and miseries which result gradually incline the minds of men who seek security and repose in the absolute power of an, of an individual. And sooner or later, the chief of some prevailing faction, more able or more fortunate than his competitors, turn, turns this disposition to the purposes of his own elevation on the ruins of public liberty. Without looking forward to an ex extremity of this kind, which nevertheless ought not to be entirely out of sight, the common and continual mischiefs of the spirit of party are sufficient to make it in the interest of and duty of a wise people to discourage and restrain it. It serves always to distract the public councils and enfeeble the public administration. It agitates the community with ill-founded jealousies and false alarms, kindles the animosity of one part against another, foments occasionally riot and insurrection. It opens the door to foreign influence and corruption, which finds a facilitated access to the government itself through the channels of party passions. Thus the party, excuse me, thus the policy and the will of one country are subject, subjected to the policy and will of another. There is an opinion that parties in free countries are useful, checks upon the administration of government, and serve to keep the, alive the spirit of liberty. This within certain limits is probably true. And in governments of a monarchical monar monar caste, patriotism may look with indulgence, if not with favor, upon the spirit of party. But in those of the popular character in governments purely elective, it is a spirit not to be encouraged. From their natural tendency, it is certain there will always be enough of that spirit for every salutary purpose. And therefore, <clears throat> and there being consistent danger of excess, the effort ought to be, by force of public opinion, to mitigate and assuage it. A fire not to be quenched. It demands a uniform vigilance to prevent its bursting into a flame. Lest instead of warning, it should consume. It is important, likewise, that the habits of thinking in a free country should inspire caution in those entrusted with this administration to confine themselves within their respective constitutional spheres, avoiding in the exercise of the powers of one department to encroach upon another. The spirit of encroachment tends to consolidate the powers of all the departments in one, and thus to create whatever the form of government a real despotism. A just estimate of that love of power and proneness to abuse it, which predominates in the human heart, is sufficient to satisfy us to the truth of this position. The necessity of reciprocal checks in the exercise of political power by dividing and distributing into different into different depositories and continuing constituting each of the guardian of the public wheel against invasions by others has been evinced and 
by experiments ancient and modern, some of them in our country and under our own eyes. To preserve them must be as necessary as to institute them. If the opinion of the people, the distribution of modification of the constitutional powers be in particular wrong, let it be corrected by an amendment in by which in, in way of which the Constitution designates. But let there be no change by usurpation, for though this in one instance may be the instrument of good, it is the customary weapon by which governments by which free governments are destroyed. The precedent must always greatly overbalance in permanent evil any partial or transient belief, which by the use of by the use can at any time yield. Of all the dispositions and habits which lead to a political prosperity, religion and morality are indispensable supports. In vain would that man claim to tribute claim the tribute of patriotism who should labor and subvert these great pillars of human happiness, these firmest props of the duties of men and citizens. The mere politician equally with with the pious man, ought to respect and cherish them. A volume could not trace all of their connections with private and public felicity. Let it simply be asked, where is the security for property, for reputation, for life, if the sense of religious obligation desert the oaths which are the instruments of investigation in courts of justice? And let us with caution indulge the supposition that morality can be maintained without religion. Whatever may be conceded to the influence of refined education on minds of peculiar structure, reason and experience both forbid us to expect that national morality can prevail in exclusion of religious principle. It is substantially true that virtue or morality is a necessary spring of popular government. The rule indeed extends with more or less force to every species of free government. Who that is a sincere friend to it can look with indifference upon attempts to shake the foundation of the fabric. Promote then as an object of primary importance institutions for the general diffusion of knowledge in proportion as the structure of a government gives force to public opinion. It is essential that public opinion should be enlightened. As a very important source of strength and security, cherish public credit. One method of preserving it is, is to use it as sparingly as possible, avoiding occasions of expense by cultivating peace, but remembering also that timely disbursements to prepare for danger frequently prevent much greater disbursements to repel it. Avoiding likewise the accumulation of debt, not only by shunning occasions of expense, but by vigorous exertion in times of peace to discharge the debts which unavoidable wars may have occasioned, not ungenerously throwing upon posterity the burden of which ourselves ought to bear. The execution of these maxims belong to your representatives, but it is necessary that public opinion should cooperate to facilitate to them the, the performance of their duty. It is essential that you should practically bear in mind that towards the payment of debts there are, must be revenue that to have no revenue that excuse me that to have revenue there must be taxes that no taxes can be devised without which are not more or less inconvenient and unpleasant 
that the intrinsic embarrassment inseparable from the selection of the proper objects, which always a choice of difficulties, ought to be a decisive motive for candid construction of the conduct of the government in making it, and for the spirit of acquiescence in the measures of obtaining revenue, which the public exis, ag, excuse me, exigencies may at that time dictate. Observe good faith and justice towards all nations. Cultivate peace and harmony with all. Religion and morality enjoin this conduct, and can it, and can it be that good policy does not equally enjoin it? It will be worthy of a free, enlightened, and at no distant period a great nation to give mankind the magnanimous and too novel example of people, of a people always guided by an exalted justice and benevolence. Who can doubt that, in the course of time, and things that fruits of such a plan would richly repay and temporary advantages uh, might, which might be lost by steady adherence to it? Can it be that providence has not connected with the permanent facility of the nation with its virtue? The experiment, at least, is recommended by every sentiment which ennobles human nature, alas, is it rendered impossible by its vices? In the execution of such a plan, nothing is more essential than that permanent inverted antipathies against... <laughs> In the execution of such a plan, nothing is more essential than that permanent inverted antipathies, it's hard to say, uh, against particular nations. And passionate attachments for those for for others should be excluded, and that in place of them, just and amicable amicable feelings towards all should be cultivated. The nation which indulges towards another a habitual hatred or habitual fondness is in some degree a slave. It is a slave to its animosity or to its affection, either of which sufficient to lead it astray from its duty and its interest. Antipathy, anti <laughs> antipathy in one nation against another disposes each more readily to offer insult to injury, to lay hold of slight causes of umbrage, and to be haughty and intractable, and accidental and trifling occasions of, dis of dispute occur. Hence, frequent collisions obstinate enven envenomed Hence, frequent collisions, obstinate, envenomed, and in bloody contests, the nation prompted by ill will and resentment, sometimes impels to, the, to war the government contrary to the best calculations of policy. The government sometimes participates in the national propensity and adopts through passion the reason that would reject. At other times, it makes the animosity of the nation subservient, subservient to the projects of hostility instigated by pride, ambition, and other sinister and pernicious, per, pernicious, pernicious motives. The peace often, sometimes perhaps the liberty of nations, has been the victim. So likewise, a passionate attachment of one nation for another produces a variety of evils. Sympathy for the favorite nation facilitating the illusion of an, emergent, of an imaginary common interest 
in cases where no real common interest exists, and infusing into one of the enmities of the other betrays the former into the participation of, in the quarrels and wars of the latter without adequate in, inducement or justification. It leads also to concessions to the favorite nation of privileges denied to others, which is apt which is apt doubly to injure the nation making the concessions by unnecessarily parting with what ought to be with what ought to have been restrained and and by exciting jealousy ill will and disposition to retaliate in the parties from whom equal privileges are withheld and it gives it to ambitious corrupted or deluded citizens who devote themselves to the favorite nation facility to betray or sacrifice the interests of their own country. Without odium, sometimes even with popularity, gilding with the appearances of a virtuous sense of obligation, a commendable deference for public opinion, or a laudable zeal for public good, the base of foolish co compliances and ambition, corruption, or infatuation. As avenues to foreign influence in innumerable ways, such as attachments, are particularly alarming to the truly enlightened and independent patriot. How many opportunities do they afford to tamper with domestic factions, to practice the arts of seduction, to mislead public opinion, to influence, to influence or awe the public councils? Such an attachment of small or weak towards a great and powerful nation dooms the former to be the satellite of the latter. Against the insidious whales of foreign influence, I conjure you to believe me, fellow citizens, the jealousy of a free people ought to be constantly awake. Since history and experience prove that foreign influence is one of the most baneful foes of Republican government, but that jealousy to be useful must be impartial, else it becomes the instrument of the very influence to be avoided, instead of a defense against it. Excessive partiality for, for one foreign nation and excessive dislike of another cause those whom they actuate to see danger only on one side and serve to veil and even second the arts of influence on the other. Real patriots who may resist the intrigues of the favorite are liable to become suspected and odious while its tools and dupes usurp the applause and confidence of the people to surrender their interests. The great rule of conduct for us in regard to foreign nations is in extending our commercial relations to have with them as little political connection as possible. So far as we already formed engagements, let them be fulfilled with perfect good faith. Here, let us stop. Europe has a set of primary interests which, have, which to us have none or a very remote relation. Hence, she must be engaged in frequent controversies, the causes of which are essentially foreign to our concerns. Hence, therefore, we, it must be unwise in us to implicate ourselves by artificial ties in the or, ordinary vicissitudes of her politics, or the ordinary combinations and collusion, collisions of her friendships or animites. Animities. Animities. And, and enmities. See, some of these words, I'm winging it. <laughs> or, the, 
Our detached and distant situation invites and enables us to pursue a different course. If we remain one people under an effective and efficient government, the period is not far off when we may defy material injury from external annoyance. When we make when we may take such an attitude as will cause the neutrality we may at any time resolve upon to be scrupulously respected. When belligerent nations, under the impossibility of making acquisitions upon us, will not lightly hazard the giving us provocation, when we may choose peace or war as our interest, guided by justice shall counsel. Why forego the advantages of so peculiar, peculiar a situation? Why quit our own to stand upon foreign ground? Why, by inter interweaving our destiny with that of any part of Europe, entangle our peace and prosperity in the toils of European ambition, rivalship, interest, humor, or caprice? It is our true policy to steer clear of permanent alliances with any portion of the foreign world. So far, I mean, as we are now at liberty to do it, for let me not be understood as capable of patronizing infidelity to existing engagements. I hold the maxim no less applicable, applicable to the public than to private affairs, that honesty is always the best policy. I repeat it. Therefore, let those engagements be observed in their genuine sense. But in my opinion, it is unnecessary and would be unwise to extend them. Taking care always to keep ourselves suitable by suitable establishments on a respectable, defensive posture, we may safely trust to temporary alliances for extraordinary emergencies. Harmony, liberal intercourse with all nations are recommended by policy, humanity, and interest. We even, by, but even our commercial policy should hold an equal and impartial hand, neither seeking nor granting exclusive favors for, or preferences consulting the natural course of things diffusing and diversifying by gentle means the streams of commerce, but forcing nothing, establishing with power so disposed in order to give trade a stable course to define the rights of our merchants and to enable the government to support them, conventional rules of intercourse, the best that present circumstances and mutual opinion will permit, but temporary and liable to the, to the from time to time abandoned or varied, as experience and circumstances shall dictate, constantly keeping in view that it is folly in one nation to look for disinterested favors from an another from another that it must pay with a portion of its independence for whatever it may accept under that character that by such acceptance it may place itself in the condition of having given equivalents for normal favors and yet of being reproached with ingratitude for not giving more there can be no greater error than to expect or calculate upon real favors from nation to nation. It is an illusion which experience must, must cure, which a just pride ought to discard. In offering to you, my countrymen, these counsels of an old and affectionate friend, I dare not hope they will make the strong and lasting impression I could wish, that they will control the usual current of the of the passions or prevent our nation from running the course which has hitherto marked the destiny of nations. But if I may even flatter myself that they may be productive of some partial benefit, some occasional good, that they may now and then recur to moderate the fury of party spirit 
to warn against the mischiefs of foreign intrigue, to guard against the impostures of pretended patriotism. This hope will be a full recompense for the solicitude for your welfare by which they have been dictated. How far in the discharge of my official duties I have been guided by the principles which I have delineated, the public records and other evidences of my conduct much must witness to you and to the world. To myself, the assurance of my own consciousness is that I have at least believed myself to be guided by them. In relation to the still subsetting war in Europe, my proclamation of the 22nd of April, 1793, is the index of my plan, sanctioned by your approving voice and by that your representatives in both houses of Congress. The spirit of that measure has continually governed me, uninfluenced by any attempts to deter or divert me from it. After deliberate examination, with the aid of the best lights I could obtain, I was well satisfied that our country, under all circumstances of the case, had a right to take and was bound by duty and interest to take neutral position. Having taken it, I determined as far as should depend on me to maintain it with moderation, perseverance, and firmness. The considerations with which respect the right to hold this conduct, it is not necessary on this occasion to detail. I will only observe that, according to my understanding of the matter, that right so far from being denied any part of the belligerent powers has been virtually admitted by all. The duty of holding neutral conduct may be interfered, may be inferred without anything more from the obligation which justice and humanity impose on every nation in cases in which it is free to act, to maintain, inviolate, and relations of peace and amity toward other nations. The inducements of interest for observing that conduct will be best referred to your own reflections and experience. With me, a predominant motive has has been to in, endeavor to gain time to our country to settle and mature its yet recent institutions and to progress without interruption to that degree of strength and consistency which is necessary to give it, humanly speaking, the command of its own fortunes. Though in reviewing the incidents Though in reviewing the incidents of my administration, I am unconscious and intentional. I am unconscious of intentional error. I am nevertheless too sensible of my defects to not think it probable that I may have admitted many errors. Whatever they may be, I fervently beseech the Almighty to avert or mitigate the evils which they may tend. I shall also carry with me the hope that my country will never cease to view them in indulgence. And with that, after 45 years of my life dedicated to its service and up with an upright zeal, the faults of incompetent abilities will be con- consigned to oblivion, as myself must soon be to the, man- to the mansions of rest. Relying on its kindness in this as in, relying on its kindness in this as in other things, 
and actuated by that fervent love towards it, which is so natural to a man who views it in the, nat- in the native soil of himself and his progenitors of several generations. I anticipate with pleasing expectation that retreat in which I promise myself to realize, without alloy, the sweet enjoyment of partaking in the midst of my fellow citizens, the benign influence of good laws under a free government, the ever-favored object of my heart, and the happy reward, as I trust, our mutual of our mutual cares, labors, and dangers. George Washington. Farewell address. Um, as you could tell, uh, uh, there were times when there are words that are very difficult to read, but I think that it, it is definitely an important uh, understanding of, of where he was coming from, what he was saying, and how they echo through the halls of today and the halls of government. Um, obviously, George Washington was famous for putting a kibosh on the on the two-party system or having different factions uh, discriminate, discriminated by their geographical location. And here we are today. He even used words like insurrection and uh, fake patriotism and, and things that echo through today that we have these barriers that will always be a, a tribal human instinct and we have to be as vigilant as possible to to listen to the words of of our founding fathers who were, while they were imperfect, they were wise and they were strong and they, they created this American experiment. And I think it's, uh, it's important. And obviously, uh, if you didn't listen to the entire thing or you want to listen to it in chunks or you fell asleep because I, I didn't know how to uh, give proper inflection in certain areas because this is actually my first time reading the entire thing out loud. I've read this a few times and I, I, I appreciate it. I've never read from this book. So some of the lines and some of the breaking points for where the words are hyphenated off the page, sometimes that throws you off and you're not able to uh, read as smoothly as if you had practiced it. So I did, I just read this straight. I, I think I read the first page before I started recording, and that's it. Um, so that's it. That's uh, George Washington's farewell address. Cheers, guys. Thank you for joining the Kogan Conversation. Be sure to like, share, and follow us on all social media platforms. This podcast is available in video form on Facebook and YouTube and audio on all platforms where podcasts are supported. Please consider supporting us on Patreon. Just a few bucks a month can really help us grow. Visit us online at www.thekoganconvo.com for more details.